This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for early November 2018. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. David, good to be with you. Thanks. We also have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a little bit of bonus audio and extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. If you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. Before we get started, we also want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible. Please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. So, Dan, how have you been? Good, David. Um, it is crisp in the air. Yeah. It is fall around us. It is sweater and hot latte season. If you are a uh, latte drinker, a coffee drinker, a chai drinker, uh, a a warm tea, um, it's that kind of weather. And that's great for scholarship. It's great for teaching. It's great for staying inside and reading. It's not necessarily great if you are a distance runner like me and you have to keep putting on more and more layers at five o'clock in the morning. I was going to ask, how how do you manage that? Is training a year-round thing or do you ever go inside and just run a laps on a track or how does that work? Well, I don't really know where there's a track inside. <laughs> I certainly don't have access to one. I mean, I do have access to a treadmill, which I hate. It's a necessary evil if if it's really bad weather, you know, torrential downpours or ice storm or if there's a lot of snow or something like that in the wintertime. It's just a matter of nitpicking. I, I guess I only consider training, training if there's a particular race coming up like a marathon. And so, you know, I do, yeah, I run year round. Um, it's just the way I keep what little sanity I have there. <laughs> so, so uh, it's, it's a way it helps me to think, it helps me to process. I think it's good for the spirit. 
As much as I, on the one hand, hate getting up very early in the morning because of my schedule, that's the best time to do it. But one of the flip sides, um, kind of an unintended benefit of running very early in the morning, long before the sun rises, especially this time of year, is that it's very prayerful. It's very quiet and peaceful. So, yeah, so that's that's how I do it. And yeah, I just keep layering up. You know, it's it's chilly out there. How are you? So we're recording this the Monday after a very bad weekend. And uh, over the weekend in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, there was the attack on the synagogue. And then on Sunday, Brazil elected basically a fascist to be their their president. And I'm just going to say that both those things kind of hit me as a one-two punch. And I'm not to mention the uh, the bombs that were sent around the, everywhere and the, and the bombs. I mean, it's it's almost crazy the fact that that that's now a distant memory given the other things that have happened. I'm. I, we we talk in the recovery community and in self-care circles about spoon theory and the, the notion of, you know, you have enough spoons to handle a certain set of emotional interactions. My spoon supply is really low right now. Hmm. And uh, coming out of this weekend, I'm struggling a bit with not despairing about how the world is going. When I look around on social media, when I look to the news – when I look not just to America but to other nations, I see an embrace of a political philosophy and an embrace of a worldview that I can't reconcile with the way that I, I understand God to be at work in the universe. And I'm wondering where this is coming from. And it's and I, I, I guess part of my my thought this morning as I'm talking to you is, you know, what do you recommend for self-care in moments like this? How do you keep yourself buoyant in the midst of what just seems for the last several months to be an onslaught of bad news? Well, you know, I don't know that I have a one-size-fits-all, and I don't know that I have it all figured out for myself, frankly. Um, It is weighing heavily on me as well. You know, I think of a couple things. One is, you know, you talk about the despair, and I think that's a perfectly natural sort of trajectory, you know, or kind of temptation, as it were. It's a gravitational pull that we have in the face of so much evil, of so much suffering, uh, some really devastating circumstances and realities. And yet, I think one other way, a constructive way to respond to that is to take that energy and not turn it inward in a despairing mode, but turn it outward in a righteous anger mode. And and I think this is especially important as, you know, this particular episode of the podcast is going to come out the day after the midterm election. So we do not know how that's going to go. But as we're preparing, you know, now a week, just about a week uh, ahead of that, as we're recording this, making sure one puts all their energy behind representing one's own values and a response to these kinds of trends on the local level, at the national level, uh, for oneself is is really important. I also think that, you know, there are other ways that, that people need to attend to their own uh, well-being, spiritual, physical, psychological, and so forth. And that varies from person to person. I mean, we opened just a moment ago talking about running. And I think for me, that that's one way that helps me balance my my own kind of energy. My you know if I'm feeling particularly anxious or stressed out or or angry, so that's helpful. It's also a good way to release energy if you're really happy too and exciting or excited. So, you know, I think it's important for us to take care of ourselves. Maybe disconnect as best we can from some of these constant news outlets. I've I've found that. 
I was a participant in a symposium, a three-day symposium last week, and it was a very grueling schedule. There were basically two 12-hour days and a half day. And because we were engaging in some really important discussion and presentations and lectures, there was very little time to connect to the Twitter feed and these sorts of things. And I, I think there's something really good about that. How do we connect with our families, our friends, our community members, where we just leave the phones aside? So it's not it's not a call. I certainly don't think it's a call to be willfully ignorant of what's going on in the world, um, because I think that's an unhealthy response to the tragedies, um, for instance, in Pittsburgh and uh, in other places around the globe, the Brazilian election, which is, it is depressing. Um, I try to remind myself, though, that that's you know the illiberalism as it's called is 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 or even a kind of neo fascism is not the law of the land everywhere we could look to france with the election of macron we could look to canada with the election of justin trudeau um we can see you know angela merkel's um you know leadership of her christian democratic party in germany as signs that not everybody is following the path of trump and brexit well you mentioned kind of disconnecting and finding other ways to connect in more positive ways. Over the weekend also, there was on Saturday night, the Saturday before we were recording this, we had a Halloween party at the parish school. And both of my children, one seven and one eight, we made homemade costumes for them. And so my son went as a robot. And so he had this cardboard box covered with gold wrapping paper and the kind of bendy tubes that you would use for a, a laundry dryer for arms. And making that and participating in the making of that and watching the joy of our kids interacting and seeing other parents going, that's a homemade robot costume. That felt really good to like reconnect with, you know, I love the fall. I love my family and I love spending time around these kind of harvest festivals with my family. And so that was a real kind of beacon of joy in the midst of what was otherwise a, a very rough weekend. And, you know, my family is a solace point. Writing is a solace point. The chance to sit down with you and with other friends and to talk about important things is a solace point for me as well. So I'm thankful for all of that. And I, I just want to encourage listeners who may be struggling right now to take time and find ways to do self-care. It's not selfish. It is essential. You you don't have the batteries to get through everything if you're constantly going and you're never stopping and saying, I'm in pain or I'm suffering, or I just need to take a moment and take a bath or take a walk or go for a run or make a robot costume. Like those are important things. And uh, we're, we're taking time to do self-care. We want to encourage you to do the same as well. Speaking of writing, how's writing and other projects going for you? I saw over the last few days you were sitting down with more of the Merton correspondents. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, I was, um, and I, people are hearing my hesitancy or my hand, verbal hand wringing right now over the podcast. It's because that is such a massive project, and it has taken a long time and has been backburnered multiple times. So I wish I had a more bandwidth to dedicate more attention to that particular project. Though it's you know I use this language. I'm not a I'm not a fan of American football. Um, I believe this is a term that's applied to that sport, forward motion. Is that a thing in football? Yeah. David's nodding his head in affirmation. So, and now he's shrugging his shoulders because he doesn't know either. Anyways, I, I always think that with projects, forward motion is what's important. It doesn't matter how far you go. I think that is a football thing because don't they say, you know, when you get to first downs and stuff, you the, the idea is to get the ball 
you know, you want to get it over a certain Oh, now I'm going to sound so ignorant about sports <laughs> that are non-running sports. You, you Let's just, talk about distance runners. You from just around need the world. to keep things moving forward, is what I'm exactly, hearing you saying. Exactly, and that there is, you know, it, it might be a little bit, it might be one yard or something like this, or not necessarily the ten that you'd like it to be, but is you know, and it, it, that's the forward motion, getting the ball down the field bit by bit. So yeah, that was that was that. I'm working on it bit by bit. The bigger project I have on my plate right now is is finishing the manuscript for um, a book that's being published by Orbis Orbis Books in uh, next year uh, on theological anthropology, which seems increasingly more relevant um, given conversations about how we understand the human person, structural injustices that exist in our society, the inadequacy perhaps of some of the ways we've been talking about humanity and and human identity. And so on the one hand, I'm, I'm thrilled to be working on it. Um, it's a daunting project in many ways, but that's those are the best kind. It's also a very exciting project. And so, um, so that's going reasonably well, but um, I, I'm hoping to have that finished in the next two months. Yeah, and I'm continuing to do writing as well, and I'm prepping for a class that I'm going to be teaching in the spring at Loyola here in Chicago on the New Testament, and that's an area that I enjoy, not as much as the Old Testament. I really like teaching Old Testament, which I'm doing this semester, but I'm enjoying prepping for that. And I just got word back from St. Anthony Messenger, which is a publication that has asked me to start doing some writing for them. They liked the first column that I sent to them as a draft, and so I think I think that I've I've cracked the code on how to write these little 600-word pieces for them, and I'm hopeful that that will continue to be a long and fruitful relationship. And I'm continuing to work on the novel. I'm continuing to work on the book for Yale, and uh, we're on track to have that turned in and ready by the deadline at the end of the year. And so all that is continuing to move forward as well. It's very exciting. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. And congrats to you as well. And I'll be praying for you in the midst of the, the onslaught of the, the Merton correspondence. Yeah. 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 Well, first I've got this big Merton conference was, yeah. <laughs> coming up in December. I'm a co-organizer co- co- of. So uh, yeah, just a reminder to our listeners, December 7th and 8th uh, here in Chicago at the Catholic Theological Union, co-sponsored with the uh, Hank Center for Catholic Thought at Loyola University, Chicago, and uh, the Chicago chapter of the International Thomas Merton Society. The three of us have gotten together, uh, and we're putting together an extraordinary program you can learn more about by going to ctu.edu slash events, and look for Richard Rohr, Father Richard Rohr's face. Click that, and you'll take a look at the schedule. We have um, two days in addition to Father Rohr's public lecture on Friday night, which tickets are going very, very fast, I should say. So you got to register in advance. There's also the opportunity for a day-long conference on Saturday, the, the kind of remainder of it, with just a wonderful slew of, of speakers on topics about Merton's legacy, his spirituality, his writings, his relevance moving forward. Uh, it's going to be a really great time. Well, and for listeners that may not have had a chance to write all that information down, there will be a chance later in this program for you to be reminded of that. So just keep listening and you'll we'll come back around with that information. Well, Dan, with that, maybe we should get into the conversation with Dr. Limor, and it's just great to catch up with you. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. 
Welcome back to the Francis Effect podcast. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss uh, contemporary events, culture, politics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We're back now on our theme schedule for this season, Tensions and Frustrations in the Church. And we're delighted to have with us Dr. Kimberly Lymore, who's going to speak with us about Black Catholic experiences, about tensions and frustrations, about hopes and joys uh, within that particular community that not many Catholics outside of the Black Catholic world may be aware of, which is part of the big problem. Let me just introduce Dr. Kimberly Lymore, who is the pastoral associate at St. Sabina Parish in the south side of Chicago. She is also director of the Augustus Tolton Program at the Catholic Theological Union, and therefore a colleague of mine. And I'm especially grateful that you're here, Kim. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. For our listeners who may not know you, and I think we'll have a number of listeners who do, maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into pastoral ministry, about your own experience. You've been doing this for some time and are very good at it. So tell us, uh, how did you get into pastoral ministry and then go on to study for your Master of Divinity degree at Catholic Theological Union um, and then your Doctor of Ministry degree at McCormick Seminary? Dan, it's kind of started as I was growing up spiritually at St. Sabina. Um, I found St. Sabina in 1983. I joined there based on, you know, just kind of, I was struggling after I, I left college or graduated from college with my, you know, getting wanting more out of church, wanting more out of uh, something was in spiritually wanted to grow and really did not know of a Catholic church that I could get it from. So contemplating maybe leaving the Catholic church. Mm. And a friend of mine was, um, lived up the street from St. Sabina, one day heard the church bells and asked one of his neighbors, is there a Catholic church around here? And he said, oh, don't you know St. Sabina? You know, everybody <laughs> knows St. Sabina. And, and even back in the day when it was an Irish Catholic parish, everything happened at St. Sabina. It was the place where everyone went roller skating. So it was a lot of things that were happening there over the years. And after the white flight, you know, it, it turned to a predominantly African-American or black parish uh, after that. But he, he heard the church bells, went the following week, and he came back and he called me up. He said, Kim, you have to come visit this mm -hmm. church. You are not going to believe it. They have gospel music and, and they have a priest that can actually preach. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which is rare in any Catholic community. And I can say that. I'm a priest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. And I don't even think it was Father Flager that was talking at that time because we had multiple priests that came through. And I came the following week and stayed. Mm -hmm. got involved in ministry. And still, I was working in corporate America. I was a systems analyst uh, with some big companies. Still, after so long, it was about 17 years, it's like, there's got to be something more. Uh, God is calling me to do more. Being in corporate America, you know, it's mostly, you know, self-fulfilling. And it's like, well, what, what can I do to touch other people and to fulfill my purpose that God has given me? And so I, I knew Vanessa White, who used to be in, in, over the uh, Tolton program, and Sister Jamie Phelps, who started the Tolton program. Yeah. And I was like, you know, maybe I can go to CTU and just kind of study. You know, just for, this would be my, actually my pastoral ministry degree, would, uh, uh, career would be after I decided to retire from corporate America, maybe. And retirement came a little earlier than anticipated. <laughs> the spirit works in, in mysterious exactly. ways. Exactly. Yeah. So in 2000, actually, I left corporate America 
and began as the pastoral associate at St. Sabina. So it's kind of, you know, it's just been a, a wonderful experience. I have not regretted leaving corporate America because, you know, corporate America is rather lucrative. Yeah. Church, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's because your reward will be great in heaven is what they keep telling <laughs> exactly. us. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So as I've, 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 over the last 18 years, I can say I have not regretted one moment leaving uh, corporate America and working for St. Sabina and the church. And so you did you grow up Catholic? Were you lifelong Catholic? I am cradle Catholic. Okay. I and grew up in the South Suburbs. And so, uh, yes, I, I, from, I was baptized when I was about five. So I always went to a Catholic school, at least for grade school. But what I'm hearing you saying is that when you were, before you found St. Sabina, you were really struggling to find a place where you felt at home as an African-American Catholic. Is that correct? Well, not necessarily as a, because uh, I went to actually a predominantly black parish in Harvey. Because, you know, I, I lived like in Markham and the border between Harvey and Hazelcrest. Well, the school in Hazelcrest, St. Anne's, would not allow black kids to go there when I was growing up. And so all of us that were in Markham that wanted to go, that the parents wanted us to go to a Catholic school, Ascension and Harvey welcomed us. So, you know, it was a predominantly, it was a mixed, very mixed parish, but we, we felt at home there. But over the years, it was more so wanting more out of, uh, you know, just, you know, basically when I was young, you know, we wanted to go and, you know, we would find the, the shortest mass to go to, <laughs> um, to meet our Sunday obligation. Yeah. And I think, you know, over the years, as you, you, you're growing and you want something more, you have life experiences and you need more of, of a more of a relationship with God and not necessarily religion. And it seems to me that as you talk about your own experience of finding St. Sabina, that it echoes the experience of a lot of people who go off to college. They're at Newman Centers and they're mm -hmm. in Catholic campus ministries that are robust and energized. And, and there's real ownership among the students of the ministries. And then they come back to their home parishes, wherever they're from. It could be Chicago. It could be anywhere. And it's the same old, same old. And like you said, people are looking for like, let's just get this over with. Give me right. the 45-minute mass. <laughs> Let me get out of here. Exactly. Right? So for, for our listeners who may not be in the Chicagoland area or may not know much about St. Sabina, you, you mentioned finding a place that had gospel music, finding a place that had good preaching, finding a place that really resonated with you. Can you help us paint a picture for our listeners about what, what the worship experience and what the, you know, one of the things St. Sabina is known for is its social activism too. Exactly. What is the community life like at this parish? We are very much involved in the community. Matter of fact, we do so much community outreach that sometimes we got to kind of come back and say, okay, we still have pastoral care issues and, and things that we need to take care of inside the church. But I think, you know, it is important that because we take up this space on 79th and Racine, we are tax exempt, that we should be bringing something, the community should be better off because we are there. And so that's why we do a lot of community outreach. Not only, you know, we have an employment resource center, we have uh, social services, which is part of our Catholic charities. We have a senior building, and we have our Ark of St. Sabina, which is our youth building, which kind of is a safe haven for those youth at their, after school to keep them, the, the young men and young ladies even, out of gangs. And so that youth building is important that from between 3 o'clock in the afternoon and 9 o'clock in the evening where they can go for tutoring, they can go for just, you know, have fun arts and crafts, cooking classes, they do music classes. So kind of all the things that appeal to young people nowadays. 
And so it has been important that we continue because of the violence that is going on. We are in in an area where violence is high. We border on the Inglewood. We are Auburn Gresham, but we border on Inglewood. And just in Chicago alone, you know, between on the south side, there's a lot of lot of violence, a lot of gang activities. And so we try to reach out to the gang members and provide even ish, uh, job training for them and, and just life skills so that they know that this is not the way to go. And just kind of, you know, accepting them where they are. As a lot of times church want to beat up people like you need to just come to church, come to church, come to church. But, you know, sometimes you got to meet them where they are. And so we try to meet them where they are. We started a, a, a peace league, which is a basketball program, which was the gang members would come together and play basketball. Hmm. And then um, the Chicago Bulls and, and some other retired uh, basketball players would come to uh, St. Sabina once a year in September to have this tournament. So this year, you know, they've, they've even reached out to the West Side. So, they, you know, kind of broadening it and, you know, and Jabari Parker, because he's the newest bull, and he's homegrown here in Chicago. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so he came and, and just that, you know, the guys always look up to them, even though they're out gangbanging, but they look up to the, these athletes. And so the athletes also have a responsibility to pour back into the neighborhoods and try to bring out what they have. So it seems like St. Sabina is not only a church, um, but it is what the early church should be, which is a community not only of faith and worship, but of the whole life. It's an integrated experience. And, and we'll come back to talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned the gang violence mm-hmm. and, and poverty is an issue on in some of these neighborhoods or many of these neighborhoods on the south side, as well as newer challenges like gentrification that's exactly. taking place in even neighborhoods like Englewood. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll circle back okay. around, around to that. But just to mention for our listeners who who may have St. Sabina ringing a bell in their head, mm-hmm. how do I know this? There have been some events, probably most famously the pastor of St. Sabina, Father Michael Flager, who the New Yorker magazine did a profile on a exactly. few years back and, and has served as um, a real leader like yourself and the rest of the, the staff and, and community of St. Sabina in working for justice and peace. And so we've seen him play an instrumental role as you have and so many of your colleagues in peace walks and marches mm-hmm. and the demonstration on the highway not too long ago right. around violence in the city. Well, also gun buybacks and, right. and other direct action mm-hmm. To really be a visible presence there in the neighborhood, as you're saying, and and it's uh, it's just amazing the spectrum of things that you folks do. Right, it keeps <laughs> us busy. But it, it you know it, there is so much need mm-hmm. um, in that area, and I, when you mentioned Dan about the poverty, um, you know when they say unemployment is you know three four percent, well in Auburn, Gresham, Inglewood, the black communities is thirty forty percent. Yeah, you know it's much higher than the average numbers. And so there's such a need. We have elders who are barely making it because, you know, you know, you have to decide between food and medicine. So even when, you know, come holidays, we try to do turkey giveaways just so that, you know, people have that turkey that they can just fix. On Christmas Day, we do a um, feed the homeless and elderly. So we have a free dinner that, you know, our people fix you know, homemade food, bring it out, uh, have it in the school hall from noon to 12. CTA donates buses to us wow! so we can go around to shelters and pick up people and just have a good time, give them, you know, gifts and just make their Christmas more normal. 
as normal as it can be if you're living in a shelter. Well, and it sounds like the reality that St. Sabina faces is a reality that all churches in the Catholic traditions should, and probably all Christian communities across the board should be facing. But a lot of churches, because of their geography or because of their privilege, are able to avoid those kinds of direct confrontations with poverty and with elderly care and with violence. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, you you are. Yeah, A lot of people, especially in your North Shore, are are kind of removed. Um, I think now, though, now that they're seeing that uh, violence is happening everywhere, um, they're more open and want to know more about what they can do and what they can do to help. And so we've partnered with people. Our Lady of Perpetual Help in Glenview, Father Flager uh, was ordained when he was a was when he become a deacon before they become a priest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was there with uh, Bishop Winston Gregory at the time. That relationship from over 40 years ago has continued. They're not necessarily our sharing parish per se as assigned by the archdiocese, but because of the relationship that we've built over over 40-something years, that they continue to partner with us in the things that we do to help people on the south side of Chicago. So maybe taking this conversation from uh, the local church here on the south side to uh, a broader perspective, one of the things I, I happen to know, we, we communicated a while back about a mutual friend, a friend of mine, Matthew Kressler, who's mm-hmm. you know an American historian of, of Catholic history in the U.S. and studied at Northwestern, right. wrote his dissertation on black Catholics uh, in the U.S., and has interviewed you, uh, right. and 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 so you have a a special knowledge, you know, and, and a and a familiarity with the history of you know Catholics of African descent in the United States, and so recognizing, of course, that everybody's experience is unique and different, and not to make a generalization, there is a a, a special history that I think a lot of white Catholics, a lot of Catholics of other uh, heritage aren't necessarily familiar with. And I think of an analog that came up when talking with Dr. Carmen Nico Fernandez, one Mm. of our earlier guests, you know, this kind of myth that because there are the U.S. population has been decreasing in some ways in the Catholic Church recently and has been kind of replaced by newer uh, Latino immigrants, all of a sudden you know, Catholic leaders are running around and saying like, oh, now there are Latino, uh, they're Hispanic Catholics. And and Carmen's very clear to remind mm-hmm. everybody, as so many others are, no, we've been here all along. Right, <laughs> you know, right. We're not new. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, you could help disabuse some of our listeners who maybe un- unwittingly, they don't realize it, think, oh, black Catholics, is is this a new thing? What What's up with that? You know, back even from slavery time. Black Catholics have been around. And the thing was, though, again, because of the slavery and because of racism, we weren't always accepted in the Catholic Church. And so, again, they had to sit at the back of the church. They couldn't go up and receive communion. So there's always this uh, racism that has always existed. Uh, Brian Massengale talks about it in his book, Racism in the Catholic Church. You know, we've always been there. You know, some people, you know, families have grown up, you know, Catholic from generation to generation. My father, I think, became Catholic because his Aunt Martha took him to church and had kind of charge over him. So, you know, he he just continued that. But most of the other family members, you know, went off to other denominations. Even most Black Catholics kind of grew up in a, a dual denomination household. 
you know, they would go to the Catholic church, you know, half hour, 45 minute service in the morning. But then they would go to the Baptist church uh, later on in the morning because, you know, that's what the family did. They went to whoever, both parents is a religion that they grew up with. Uh, Cyprian Davis wrote the book about the history of Black Catholics also. Uh, so those are kind of the, the the references that they've been around for as long as you can imagine. And what happened is, is and, and I can speak from our context here in Chicago, in the late 1960s, like I say, uh, St. Sabina was an Irish parish. And uh, African-Americans were, were moving into these areas now in, in the Auburn-Gresham area. And what happened was then there was this white flight that was beginning to take place. Uh, Senior McMahon, who was the pastor, Father McMahon, who was the pastor, Monsignor McMahon, who was the pastor of St. Sabina Church, wanted to kind of, he wanted to stop that white flight. And he wanted everyone to come together. And so he hired Saul Alinsky, uh, a famous social justice person here in Chicago. And from that, you know, he, he tried to stop it, but it didn't work. You know, families would, you know, one day they're there, the next morning they're gone. Wow. They would just kind of move out. And so a lot of your black Catholic churches here in Chicago, where, like I say, were different denominations or different uh, ethnic groups, uh, but then ended up turning over to black. And we ended up inheriting these large churches, old churches that um, are hard to upkeep. And cost a lot of money to upkeep, but, you know, been been managing over the years while all the, the white Catholics have moved out to the suburbs and they've built, you know, more uh, eco- uh, more uh-huh. economically green churches. Green, right, green churches, maybe yeah. not even before green churches. Yeah. But, you know, you know, Affordable. they're not they don't have this cathedral ceilings and all of that stuff. So. To so, heat in the Chicago winter. Right, know, right. The heat. And, and most of ours are, you know, boiler heats. And so boilers, you know, every time I see the, the boiler people there, you see dollar signs just yeah. going out the window. But going back to, so the black Catholic community has, um, you know, kind of, it had grown. But then, again, because of some racism, not totally being accepted in the Catholic church at large, when you look at our pastoral center and, and the people that uh, that surround themselves with the cardinal, they don't look like us necessarily. And so it continues to be a struggle with, like I say, the racism that goes on. They might not think they're racist, but, you know, when, when you, um, you just don't have us at the table. Not everyone is represented at the table to help make those decisions that are made for the Catholic Church at large. And maybe this is a time to take a quick break. Uh, We'll be back in a moment with the Francis Effect podcast. Hey, listeners, this is uh, Dan here. I just want to tell you about a very cool event that's in the works and is scheduled to take place here in Chicago on December 7th and December 8th, 2018. This is a conference called Disappear from View, Thomas Merton 50 Years Later and Beyond. And it is a co-sponsored conference that is taking place Friday evening and all day Saturday, December 7th and 8th. It's co-sponsored by the Bernadine Center at 
Catholic Theological Union, by the Hink Center for Catholic Thought at Loyola University Chicago, and by the Thomas Merton Society Chapter of Chicago. Um, we have a public lecture by Father Richard Rohr on Friday evening, and uh, a, a whole slate of excellent keynote and concurrent session speakers on Saturday. You can find out more about this event by going to ctu.edu slash events. That's ctu.edu slash events. Hope to see you here. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks we get together to talk about topics and issues through a lens informed by our Catholic faith. This season we are looking at frustrations and tension points in the Church. Today we're talking with Dr. Kimberly Lymore of St. Sabina Parish and also of Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago about the African-American experience here in the Catholic Church. Well, you mentioned that sometimes when the archdiocese is looking at Chicago issues, it doesn't always recognize African-American Catholicism, and partly because you're not represented at the table, partly because there's just not an awareness of that was what I heard you saying. I also know that there's been some friction points between former cardinals and archbishops and Father Flager, the longtime pastor at St. Sabina. My impression is that that friction seems to be shifting a bit under Cardinal Supich. What is your impression of that? That is correct. Cardinal Supich has been very supportive of the outreaches that we do at St. Sabina. He came to a march, maybe two marches. He might have been there for two marches. And then he, you know, he, he's, like I say, just very supportive of what we do. And so that has been a shift in the way we've been responding or having our relationship with the archdiocese. Cardinal George, I mean, I, th- I think he understood what we did, but he would bow more to popular, uh, the voices that were loudest against us, the hate. Amazingly, like when Father Flager was suspended twice, or if we're on the forefront of some issue, the hate calls that we receive from St. Sabina is unbelievable and discouraging when you talk about especially church and they identify themselves as devout Catholics. And they will identify themselves as devout Catholics, saying that you all should go back to Africa or that Father Flager is an in-lover and that he needs to step down as a priest and, you know, just... It's unbelievable and, and, and hurtful, but more unbelievable that we in the church would act like that. And maybe one thing that we should clarify for listeners who are unfamiliar with St. Sabina is that Father Flager is Caucasian and has for a long time been ahead of a predominantly African-American parish and has chosen to identify with the issues, the threats, the causes that are there in the Auburn-Gresham neighborhood. So he really is embodying what James Cohn talked about, which is when you when you sort of lay down your privilege, mm-hmm. they'll start attacking you just like they're attacking the minorities. Is exactly, that, exactly, yeah. exactly. So we've been talking um, somewhat tangentially, I think, mm-hmm. but also it's always present, the reality of racism. And you'd mentioned Father Brian Massengale earlier, mm-hmm. a good friend of CTU, and certainly David and I are big fans of his work and have talked about him quite a bit on this program. And one of the things he talks about is the distinguishing of 
what we mean by racism, that a lot of people have a kind of common sense notion of racism, of kind of discrete acts of harm against another, using mm. the N-word, using mm -hmm. associating with hate groups, um, discriminating or being violent towards particular individuals or groups. But then he makes a point, uh, along with so many others, of what he calls cultural racism, what we might also call structural or systemic racism, mm -hmm. institutional mm -hmm. racism. And... I think one of the things I've heard, Kim, is, is you've been talking about your own experience, talking about the experience of the community of St. Sabina, and that I think maybe we can uh, kind of bring out into a bigger picture about the experience of black Catholics uh, in, in the U.S. church is the reality of racism within the faith community, within Catholicism, within the U.S. context. You know, there's this document that's been in the works forever on racism in the United States at the USCCB. And I know that Father Massengale has uh, publicly shared he's never been consulted exactly. on that text. You know, and still to, hasn't. Still hasn't. And to my knowledge, there are a number of other African-American Catholics, people who are scholars of the black Catholic experience and about, you know, the, the history of those of African descent that have not ever been consulted. And my understanding is that document is on its way out. So it'll be very interesting to see what emerges. But I think another thing Father Massengale points out is that the last time the bishops of the United States came out with a document, they have the most condescending title one could possibly imagine. And this, I think, came out in the 80s. It was mm -hmm. called Brothers and Sisters to, to Us. us. Mm -hmm. and, and we have to ask the question, well, who is the <laughs> us? So, you know, as mm -hmm. that by way of background... You know, racism, I think, cultural racism, structural racism is hard, I think, for a lot of people. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of people. People uh, who look a lot like me, mm -hmm. white, particularly white men, particularly white male religious or clerics. Mm -hmm. You know, I I'm often have to remind myself to acknowledge my social location, that I sit in society at an intersection of a lot of privilege mm. as a man, as a white person, as somebody who's well-educated, as somebody who's a Roman Catholic priest. Mm -hmm. You know, there's very few places where, where I don't benefit from systems of oppression or injustice. Mm -hmm. And so for those who may not be aware of it or remind themselves of it frequently, racism can seem like a big thing, but you've already started to name some of the ways that the reality of racism in the church, not just in society, but in our own faith community, presents challenges mm. for black Catholics who have always been here. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about from your experience as a pastoral minister for, for two decades now, as somebody who is a formation leader and a pastoral minister in a, in a formal setting too, what are some of the, the effects of racism within Catholicism, within the U.S. context that, that you've recognized as real challenges and tensions for people? One of the things that you see when Cardinal Supich came in, a lot of the like ethnic ministry offices were supposedly sent out to the grassroots. And those were positions that lay people used to hold, but then they put the clerics over them. And so when I was saying we're not at the table, I don't think the higher-ups really understand what happens when we are not able to voice or give voice to concerns when we hear on a day from the grassroots people. And we look at the new initiative, Renew My Church. And while it might be necessary, uh, because it's from a more of a, a business than spiritual standpoint to close or group, they used to call it clustering, mm -hmm. 
but they call down it grouping. Same difference. <laughs> Sometimes people are so tied to the churches that they grew up in or have been in for a while. And when you talk about the groupings and then you have parishes that are closing, I'm going to use the, the three on the south side, uh, St. Albies, St. Felicitas, and St. Joachim's grouped together. Coming into one parish now, I think it's called St. Catherine Drexel is the new name. And St. Felicitas and Joachim's will close. And I don't think that the archdiocese really understand that there needs to be more pastoral care when closing the parishes. We've been through this constantly of churches closing, West Side combining down into, you know, four four churches maybe out of all the ch- black churches that used to be on the West Side. And so how that affects people and why people end up leaving the church because of the way it's handled, the the, the lack of pastoral care that takes place, and, and just getting people to truly understand that you are, we are really the church, the people are the church, not the building. But I don't know, I, I think I might be upset if if they tried to close St. Sabine. I really, <laughs> yeah. you know, that building piece, you know, it's a beautiful building. We we spent money to upkeep all these years, and now you're saying we're going to close, even though we're self-sufficient. Now, can I ask a follow-on question on that? Mm-hmm. Because let's take four parishes on the north side, and then you've got four parishes on the south side. Both may raise a hue and a cry. My sense is that the Northside Parish is going to get a more sympathetic hearing, even though the structural problems are worse on the South Side for closing those parishes and consolidating them. Am I correct in that, or is am I off base on that? No, I mean to a certain degree, yes, you 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 are correct. Uh, I think the North Side will will get more of an ear t- than than the South Side, even though it might be easier for those four parishes to consolidate on the North Side for things like the the structural problems of transportation and accessibility and those sorts of things. Yeah, and I don't even think it has anything to do with transportation. Okay. A lot of it has to do with financial. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, some parishes, you know, received subsidies, and when you get those subsidies, if you don't pay them by the end of the fiscal year, they become loans mm. with interest, and so you have some parishes that are in great debt. But then you have some that have, you know, a lot of your Catholic schools have closed. And so a lot of them are being rented out by charter schools. So they might not have the numbers in the pews and the money coming into the church, but they're still self-sufficient from the standpoint that they get the rental money from the charter schools. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, something that James Baldwin and others have talked about, which is that we see play out here in the, in the Catholic context of the archdiocese by way of one example which is that communities of color that may not have the resources because of the institutional structures of racism in society to support themselves then become a problem. Right. And so that famous question, I think, I don't even, I think W.E.B. Du Bois actually raised this at first, like what does it feel like to be a problem? Hmm. And what I'm hearing you describe in kind of the financial categories is that, you know, when you look at these historically black or have now become predominantly black Catholic parishes on the South Side, because of the financial constraints, the archdiocese sends a message, maybe unintentionally, but at times in the restructuring process, it's like, well, you're a problem. You owe money. You're mm-hmm. in debt mm-hmm. without really considering the broader picture, the dynamics that are at play. Exactly. And it, it just, it's, it's almost a vicious cycle. You know, we, we, want, we, we do want more vital, vibrant churches. I mean, we need that. We need more prophetic churches. But 
like I said, we got to get the people to understand that we are the church. And yeah, the building, probably better off without it. But, you know, it, it, actually, we need to go beyond the building. You know, when you talk about the Great Commission, it didn't say go and build more churches. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. It said go and make disciples. And, not, and so it's not the building. And it's, it's, it's what we need to be more. And so I guess it goes against, you know, and, and you talk about this in Renew My Church, about maintenance and mission. And so we need to get back to the mission that Jesus left us before he went to the cross, that the mission of the church, and we need to get back to that and doing that. Well, there's a huge banner hanging in St. Sabina. Remind me what it says. It says, discipleship will cost. Are you willing? Yeah. And so, yeah, we do. And I even did a a lay ecclesial ministry, actually lay leadership workshop on Saturday at the Meyer Center. And all the folks from Mundelein came down and it it talked about making everyone in church are believers. We all believe. And but what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And so it goes beyond just being in church. It's being the church. It goes beyond just uh, knowing of God. But it's in doing what Jesus has taught us to do and how we're supposed to live, that love one another. And for those that are listening that may not be familiar, Mundelein is what, Dan? The Archdiocesan Seminary here in Chicago. So they're on the far north side, and it's a beautiful campus. And that's where the diocesan seminarians and and some lay folk train for for ministry. I'm struck by that the message of the banner about discipleship being costly. And, and I think some of our listeners may be thinking, of course, of, of Bonhoeffer's book on the cost mm, of discipleship exactly. and, and see how he, in his own, during World War II, in his own ministry and witness as a Lutheran pastor and theologian, gave his own life, you know, at the hands of the Nazis. But I'm also struck in our conversation about one of the tensions that exists within our faith community. We are the church, as you say, you know, Christ has sent us on mission. But I can't help but think back to this because I I don't think I've ever thought about it quite this way. The nuts and bolts of subsidizing parishes and the loans and everything is that the price is paid differently by different people. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, Mm -hmm. Kim, but but let me know if this is resonating at all that – one way I, as, a, as uh, from my vantage point, from my context, would describe it is that I get the impression that Catholic folks, particularly black Catholics on the South Side, have a more costly price in the church or for discipleship than perhaps, you know, some communities that maybe look more like me. And I don't know if that's the experience of people who worship at St. Sabina or the people you minister with and train. Do you get that sense at all? One of the challenges, well, you know, we talk about stewardship. We call it in the in the Black Catholic Church of tithing. Right? Yeah, 10%. 10% tithing. <laughs> that comes from your Malachi. And actually, back in 2000, we did a Black Catholic convocation. And, it you know, they studied some numbers and studied offerings and giving and discovered that actually Black Catholics give more per capita than really white Catholics. But a lot of our money has to go to upkeep of these monstrositous buildings. And, you know, and then we, we pay our, our assessments to the archdiocese. And when we think about the archdiocese being, you know, we've got to give our 13% or whatever we give for our assessments. So our assessments are based on our offering. And when we have an offering that is substantial, then we're assessed more. So... In your white Catholic churches, and this is just kind of my hypothesis, 
you know, you know, they give their little $5 or give their little whatever they're going to give. But at Christmas and Easter, you know, they might give a bigger offering. Well, the Christmas and even Easter offerings are not counting as part of assessments. Mm-hmm. So we're assessed at a higher rate because our offerings are higher. Because we've been taught to tithe. And so when we have to pay more to the archdiocese than some of our white parishes, then it becomes kind of a justice issue. How do we share all of this and not just be counted because because our people give more because we've taken ownership of our church and we know that we're not going to get any help from the archdiocese? How do we take ownership? And so we really encourage tithing. So when we have over a million dollars in offerings for the year, we're assessed on that. Wow. And so it seems to me that there's cultural translation at every level that needs to happen here because Hmm. there are multiple cultures within Chicago Catholicism, let alone Catholicism writ large. And there's a misunderstanding because there is an overemphasis on Caucasian white Catholic experience as the Mm. normative experience, brothers and sisters to us, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned before, there's a misunderstanding of these multiple registries of different ways of tithing, different Mm -hmm. ways of being church, different ways of being in the community. And that leads to what I'm hearing you saying is cascading injustices, both intentional and unintentional. Yes, for sure. And I would say, too, you know, it's, it's important in the spirit of acknowledging the reality of racism that exists beyond society and throughout the Catholic Church, that when we say white, white Catholic communities or something, that is a uh, kind of qualifier that changes over time. Who gets to count as white too, right? Hmm. And then who becomes the other? And so we see this in, in contrast, you know, white is actually a, a stand-in for those who are in positions of both representation as well as, as power, as well as authority, Whereas now all of a sudden Latino Catholics, they're not white, so we're going to tend to them. Black Catholics, you know, they're not white. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder if, Kim, you had mentioned representation being a big problem, that a lot of those who are in positions of leadership within this archdiocese, but within the U.S. Catholic Church, uh, don't reflect all the communities and, and don't hear from them. I think even of, you know, Father Flager and, and Father O'Donnell, Matt O'Donnell mm-hmm. um, at, at St. Columbanus, another predominantly uh, African-American parish. These are two white diocesan priests. Um, and so though they're advocates, they're deeply embedded, they're part of this community, mm-hmm. um, they're part of the family. Nevertheless, the representation doesn't exist at the administrative level as it ought to. And so I, you know, I wonder how that representation, not just the financial injustices that totally exist, you know, even within the kind of church politics or economy, I wonder about things like worship style hmm. that it's, it's, you know, you see this kind of the trolling online, you know, if there's a video posted on the internet or, you know, Father Flager is very, you know, has a big Twitter following, <laughs> these kinds of things, the hateful stuff that appears mm-hmm. when you see music other than, quote, white Catholic music, when you see dance incorporated into the liturgy other than, you know, that's not the way, quote, Catholics are supposed to do this. Or when you see preaching that goes on for a half hour, 45 minutes. (laughs) Hour. (laughs) Hour, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You know, that's not the way that, quote, Catholics do Mm -hmm. it, which sometimes to me stands in as as a very thinly veiled racist Mm. claim. Mm -hmm. How do people feel about that? In a worship community like St. Sabina, the people that you are forming and, and, and training for ministry at CTU, uh, the Tolton Scholars, 
that, that must register. That must hit home. And it does, Dan. And I just have to tell you a little story about that. You know, we always used to hear from across the board, uh, St. Sabina's not really Catholic. Oh, geez. And so when I went to CTU and we started reading the liturgy documents, we started reading the social justice teachings. I'm like, well, I think we're doing all of this. <laughs> so just because our mass is not half hour, 45 minutes, hour, that we're not Catholic, we, you know, we have a different way of worshiping and, and that feeds us. It just amazed me. I said, I think we're more Catholic than most Catholic churches. I think that's right. And so I began to like really push back on when they say, well, we're not Catholic. You know, actually what it is is, and even, you know, when Protestant people, we, we have different speakers that come to St. Sabina. And for one, everyone references that sign, discipleship will cost, are you willing? Because it's, it's, it is, it's been up since 1999, going into 2000, because it is so, such a profound a thought that we are to be more than believers. We are to be disciples of Christ. But when we think about how we are doing church, I'm like, well, we are more Catholic. And and I just start pushing back. It's like you, they can't put St. Sabine in a box. They can't. And that's fine. We do what we feel and that we see that God is leading Pastor Flager, that, that we follow that vision. You know, we've been known, we've been called a cult because we had this run-in one time when they was trying to remove him. And I remember it was Ash Wednesday and this lady, we were, you know, I was I was at the church, but they were at studio in, uh, at WTTW on Chicago Tonight or something. And, and she was like, well, it's a cult. You, you know, it's like that group that follows Paul. You know, so she was kind of proof texting. I wanted to say, you proof texting, but you know, <laughs> we didn't go off into that. And, and, and But it's like, no. We follow God, but God has given the vision to Pastor Flaker. So as long as we're in line with that vision, we keep doing what we need to do. And like I say, sometimes we do what we think and know that's right and ask forgiveness later. But we have to continue to follow the mission that God gave St. Sabana. It might not, every church is not for going out marching. And we're not saying that. This is what we do. But Every church is charged to go and make disciples and inspire witness. And if you don't do that, and if you're just sitting in your four little walls, then you're, you, you might be kind of unpleasantly surprised come that time when you get to that gate. <laughs> I'm always reminded, I think it's in Matthew's gospel, where, uh, and it may appear in the other synoptics too, where Jesus says something to his disciples about, a lot of you say, Lord, Lord, right, you know, exactly. it's that whole idea of believing mm -hmm. versus discipleship. And he's mm -hmm. like, so you'll be surprised to see who's who's coming Come, in the kingdom. Exactly. And, and we see that at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 25, you know, it's about what you actually do. Mm -hmm. James's letter, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the faith through our works. Exactly. You know? So I, I think, you know, one of the things that's really inspiring to me about the faith community of St. Sabina, uh, about the ministry of of Father Flager and others, yourself included, is that it's that it's you're living out what that poster, what that banner says, mm -hmm. which is it's not sufficient to call yourself Christian, to call yourself a Catholic Christian, and just show up, put your money in the, in the collection, right. and call it a call it a week for under an hour. But that discipleship is costly. It's and, a lifestyle, and I think a lot of that hatred, in addition to the the deep racist ties that are embedded in society and in our socialized kind of rearing 
there's also this discomfort that I think a lot of your run-of-the-mill white Catholics particularly might feel where they feel called out on. You know, mm-hmm. you're telling me I got to change my life. And, and then the response might be, no, Jesus is telling you you've got to change exactly. your life. Exactly. And we should listen to Jesus in that moment. We absolutely should. Mm-hmm. As we're sort of drawing this to a close, I, I want to ask one more question. My experience oftentimes of parish life in the various parishes my wife and I have been in is that we show up, we we go, we worship, and maybe we know a few families, but for the most part, there's not a tight-knit community there. Can you tell me a little bit about what the community feels like at St. Sabina? Very loving, very welcoming. Uh, we hug a lot. I even asked a group, at, I was talking to the Archdiocese of uh, Gary the other day, and I said, so when did we change this whole Our Father and we don't hold hands anymore? We still hold hands. And that's one of the things that they point out when they come to St. Sabina and visit of how welcoming we are. You know, we we try to reach out to those that we don't know. And it's just such a, we actually, you know, we enjoy coming to church. We have a, a, that whole community life. I mean, of course, we're always struggling. And we we're just like any other parish trying to engage everyone into ministry. Uh, like as they say, eighty percent of the work is done by twenty percent of the people, and so it, it still is no different at Saint Sabina. But we're still trying to constantly engage people in what we do, not only in the community. Uh, Pastor Flager says that really our congregation is the Auburn Gresham community, but we are the disciples that come together each week in that huddle time. That time where we come together and we, we we listen to the word, we hear preaching, we get our charge to what we need to do during the week. And he says that people don't come to see the huddles or the games. They come to see the play, well, the game well being played. And so once we leave church and get get what we need, you know, like again, we can't give out what we don't have. And so we come get filled up, empowered by the word, and then go out. And do what Jesus told us to do. Go and make disciples. Well, Dr. Kimberly Limore, I just want to say how much we appreciate you taking the time to be here today and to tell us about the community at St. Sabina, to talk about your experience, but also to help our listeners understand a little bit of this very important aspect of Catholicism that oftentimes gets overlooked. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for having me. Francis Effect Podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center dot O-R-G. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. 
We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our previous seasons. Thank you for listening. <laughs>